0: Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast, Elevating Emergency Nursing, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Recess Nurse Podcast. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. So today, uh, we're going to continue on the ketamine series um, with my friend Ruben Strayer. Uh, Today is part two out of a three-part series, and we're going to focus on procedural sedation and analgesia, uh, or otherwise known as PSAs, and then rapid sequence intubations, otherwise known as RSIs. If you're lost and you have no idea what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the last episode, which is episode seven, and it is part one of this ketamine series, um, A Special K Trip. So we're not talking about the breakfast cereal. We are talking about ketamine. You can go to the show notes at recessnurse.com, and a lot of the key points are going to be in the show notes, and also just a couple of things Regarding PSAs um, in terms of prepping yourself, prepping the patient, and also some post PSA ketamine pearls. So that's all at recessnurse.com. And now the continuation of ketamine with Ruben Strayer. Let's actually talk about PSAs. So, in terms of dosing, uh, you suggest uh, we should be doing a dissociative dose. Uh, do you ever use a different type of dosing or um, is it always a dissociative dose?
1: When I use uh, ketamine for procedural sedation, I use a dissociative dose. You can definitely get by uh, with subdissociative doses, less than a dissociative dose. A dissociative dose, by the way, is greater than 0.75 to 1.0 um, milligrams per kilogram IV or greater than 4 to 6 milligrams per kilogram IM. Ketamine is less potent IM than it is IV. If you give more than that, that dose or more, then uh, your patient will probably become dissociated. dissociated If you give two milligrams per kilogram IV, just about everyone is going to become dissociated at that dose. And that's what I recommend. You can use smaller doses, and that may put your patient in kind of a haze, and that may be enough to perform your procedure Uh, humanely, I don't see a huge benefit uh, there. The closer you get to dissociation, the more likely you are to have the dangerous effects of dissociation that I just mentioned. Um, And the further away from dissociation, the less likely your patient's going to tolerate a painful procedure. So you may reduce the duration of action, which is a benefit if you have a very short procedure. People try to get by with a small dose for a short procedure. But for very brief procedures, I generally recommend propofol as your PSA agent of choice and not ketamine. So I give dissociative dose ketamine um, every time. Um, When I'm doing procedural sedation with ketamine, I want to know that the patient is fully dissociated and that I can perform my painful procedure humanely.
0: Okay, so let's say um, you're doing a PSA. Um, on a patient, and you're going to give a dissociative dose of ketamine. How are you administering your ketamine? So there's a lot of um articles out there. Um, you know, are you doing a push a push dose? Are you doing a slow bolus infusion? Are you running it free? Are you running it on a pump? Uh, how are you administering the ketamine? Uh, prior to this PSA uh, procedural sedation?
1: The classic way to give ketamine for PSA is to use a quick bolus. And that works just fine and is generally pretty safe. It's really not a big problem to do that. And if that's what you are doing, that's fine. The problem with using bolus dose ketamine uh, for procedural sedation, so dissociative dose ketamine as a bolus, as like a quick push, is firstly, you will often often see a brief period of apnea when you push a dissociative dose of ketamine IV. So if you give 200 milligrams of ketamine, let's say, and you just sort of push that over one to two seconds, many patients will develop a brief period of central apnea for 10 to 20 seconds. It almost always resolves spontaneously, and it generally doesn't require any sort of intervention. But no one wants to see that. No one wants to see that period of apnea. So that's one reason why bolus dose um, could be improved on. The other reason is that the psycho-perceptual effects of ketamine um, are augmented by giving it as a quick bolus. And so there's some data to suggest that the slower you give it, the less likely your patient is to develop uh, psychiatric emergence distress. Um, that goes for analgesic dosing, which we'll probably talk about later, but uh, I uh, always give it slowly either in a dilute preparation um, over 10 to 20 seconds in a 20cc syringe or even better is uh, giving your full dissociative dose over a few minutes um, in like uh, what some call like a set, like a 50cc bag or 100cc bag and just sort of quickly drip it in over a couple of minutes and that's probably the best way to do it. But uh, you don't see that very often.
0: Okay. And um, so I like to either do that. I either like to push it really, really, really slow, probably over maybe two minutes or so, or I will uh, inject maybe, let's say, the 200 milligrams of ketamine into a 50 ml NS bag and then just put it in, just basically run it as a bolus open wide um, now should we prepare our patients? Should we, uh, make them feel good or, uh, w- it's a stressful situation. They come in, they know they need to do this. They're freaking out already probably. And then we're about to give them some ketamine. They might freak out. Um, how do we prevent this, uh, psychiatric distress?
1: Um, that's a great question. Uh. And it turns out that there are a number of ways to reduce the likelihood that um, your patients will experience emergent psychiatric distress. The first is to make sure your patient is comfortable uh, prior to ketamine induction. So, for example, if they have a broken arm and you're giving them ketamine to facilitate reduction of that fracture, then you want them to be comfortable prior to induction. And that means generally intravenous opioids. Uh, So you don't need additional analgesia on top of ketamine. Ketamine is a powerful analgesic. But if your patient is uh, in a lot of distress because of pain, as they descend into a ketamine trip, that's going to make it more likely that they have distress as they emerge from their ketamine trip. So pre-induction comfort is the first strategy. The second is pre-induction coaching. And this is effective and I think essential. And the way you do it is you tell your patient before you give the drugs that they're going to be receiving a very powerful psychotropic medication, that it's going to give them extremely vivid dreams, but that they can control their dreams. So as I'm giving you this drug, I want you to imagine a fantastic place that you'd rather be right now, like the beach or a mountaintop. I try to tailor my recommendations to the patient and that sort of coaching really helps um, guide them to a good place when ketamine um, kicks in and makes it less likely that they're going to have emergent psychiatric distress.
0: All right. Yeah, I I definitely do the same thing as well. Um, uh, sometimes, especially we're trying to do something quickly, uh, we should definitely take the time to kind of get our patients a little bit more relaxed. And then when they do get the ketamine, um, we try to reduce that emergent psychiatric distress. Um, so let's say, uh, do you do you use ketamine alone or do you use another agent, uh, maybe propofol or another agent uh, when you're performing PSAs?
1: Right. So the most important side effects when you use dissociative dose of ketamine for procedural sedation are... Um, Muscle rigidity, which can sometimes interfere with orthopedic procedures. And you can also see hypertension, as we mentioned. This almost never matters, but sometimes it does matter. And both of these uh, side effects, in addition to psychiatric emergence distress, um, are cured by propofol. So propofol can be thought of as sort of the antidote to... The problems you see with ketamine. And the way that I do ketamine PSA is I give a full dissociative dose, usually 100 to 200 milligrams IV. And I have 200 milligrams or so of propofol drawn up in syringes. And I give small boluses, aliquots of propofol as needed to manage muscle rigidity if I care or hypertension if I care, and then to manage psychiatric emergence distress if it develops, which it usually does doesn't. So I usually don't end up using the propofol, but occasionally I do. And um, when you when you want it, when you're developing these these problems, you want to have propofol on standby, ready to go. And I think that's the right way to, to do ketamine PSA. With propofol, I prefer that method, dosing them independently, to ketofol, which is putting ketamine and propofol in the same syringe. Ketofol has been pretty well studied now, and it works well. And you can definitely use it You can use it in a sort of one-to-one dilution, and there are a number of other uh, ratios that have been studied. It definitely works, it's definitely effective. It just turns out that it's no more effective than using the agents individually as monotherapy. Uh, So that's how I do it. When I'm doing a very short procedure, especially if muscle relaxation is needed, like a joint reduction um, or cardioversion, I use propofol. And for just about everything else, I use ketamine monotherapy with boluses of propofol 20, 30, 40 milligrams as needed for muscle rigidity, hypertension, or psychiatric emergence distress.
0: So you, you did your PSA procedure, you gave a dissociative dose of ketamine, and procedure went great. And now the patient's metabolizing their ketamine and they're going back down the brain continuum and they are experiencing some emergent um, psychiatric distress, how are you going to treat that so you still have somewhat of a disposition instead of just giving them more ketamine and putting them back into a dissociative dose?
1: Um, You can uh, give more ketamine if you haven't done your procedure yet. So sometimes if you give ketamine... And you push the patient not to dissociation, but to partial dissociation. By not giving enough, they can have psychiatric distress. And the answer there, if you haven't done your procedure yet, is to give more ketamine. Now, if you've already done your procedure, the patient was dissociated, is now emerging from dissociation, passing back through partial dissociation. And while partially dissociated, starts to freak out. You need to treat that. And you want to treat that with a conventional sedative. You can use propofol as we discussed, which works great. You can also use midazlam, which is the conventional choice, and that also works fabulously well. Two, three, four milligrams will take care of it. You can even use a neuroleptic like haloperidol or droperidol. There's actually a fair amount of literature on droperidol with ketamine uh, from the 70s. works very, very well to attenuate psychiatric distress. So the one thing you don't want to do is ignore it and just wait for the patient to metabolize they will uh, but it can take 5 10 15 minutes and that's just way too long to be suffering with psychiatric distress treat it
0: all right and just to be clear um for the american listeners you cannot get droperidol in america
1: (laughs) unless you work at Mayo clinic where they synthesize their own
0: right (laughs) um Okay, so finally, um, what population should there be caution in using ketamine or um, specifically for procedural sedation?
1: So uh, ketamine has really very few contraindications. The one type of person I would not use ketamine in is the patient who you don't think will tolerate hypertension or tachycardia. So generally this is uh, an elderly patient with heart disease who, if given a drug that makes their afterload go up, could develop acute heart failure. That's the most important, I think, contraindication. That said, if you see hypertension that you don't like, it is easily treatable with propofol or some other sympatholytic. So it's not a firm contraindication. The classic contraindications to ketamine related to intracranial pressure and intraocular pressure or psychiatric disease, uh, those have been proven to be uh, not true, and you can use ketamine in those in those patients.
0: All right, so that leads to the next very, very uh, common use in emergency medicine, which is your intubations, your RSIs. Okay, so you're saying that maybe even your head trauma patients uh, can use ketamine for RSI. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Uh, we used to think that ketamine was contraindicated in patients where you were concerned about or knew that they had increased intracranial pressure. So, for example, a head trauma patient, but now we know that that is not true and that ketamine is safe in patients with increased intracranial pressure. And in fact, it's probably neuroprotective, uh, both directly and as an agent that is um, most likely to preserve blood pressure. No patient needs their blood pressure as much as a brain-injured patient. So, many trauma organizations have adopted ketamine as their induction agent of choice uh, for RSI uh, in the polytrauma or head injured patient.
0: Okay. And then, so how, how is uh, ketamine compared to etomidate uh, like in terms of their pharmacokinetics? Uh,
1: Both ketamine and etomidate work on a sort of arm to brain onset. So they both act, Uh, depending on where your IV is, within 5 to 15 seconds as induction agents. So they're both instant on. Um, Ketamine tends to last longer than etomidate. When you give etomidate in the usual dose for RSI, which is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, you get generally 5 to 10 minutes of sedation with that dose of etomidate, whereas with ketamine, depending on how much you use, you get generally more like 10 to 20 minutes. Because I want to have the, the the long the longest possible period after RSI to make sure that my everything is t- tied up together and that my drips are ready and so forth, I generally give a very big dose for RSI. In most patients that I'm intubating, like minimum would be 200 milligrams. I'll sometimes give 300 or even 400 milligrams, which again doesn't change the action of ketamine; just prolongs the duration. And so if you give 300 milligrams of ketamine to a normal-sized adult, you've generally bought yourself 30 minutes or so, uh, maybe longer, of dissociation, which is fabulous. That gives you lots of time to get everything settled and get your um, drip set up, your post-intubation drip set up, so that you don't leave the patient uncovered.
0: Okay, so let's say we're doing an RSI and you decided to use ketamine, and you're obviously giving a big dissociative dose um we're expecting transient tachycardia and hypertension but what about your very very sick patients they're you know they're we're intubating them because they're really on their last leg are they going to get are we expecting transient tachycardia and hypertension or are they going to be hypotensive which is generally let's say if you did like a etymidate and rock combo for your rsi we generally see a transient hypotension
1: Right. So every patient who is at the end of their catecholamine rope is going to see a drop in blood pressure with any induction agent, including etomidate, including ketamine. And that's why uh, you should try not to intubate uh, patients uh, who are at the end of their catecholamine rope who are totally exhausted uh, of catecholamines from their illness. That said, we often have no choice. Uh, These patients also have a tendency to totally crash and stop breathing. So if you can't resuscitate before you intubate, which is what we recommend, so address the blood pressure and the underlying problem before intubating if possible. If you can't do that, then you want to, um, then you want to use the low dose of your induction agent and, um, both ketamine and etomidate are very reasonable options in that circumstance. Propofol wouldn't be because it's a direct vasodilator.
0: All right. And um, what paralytic agent are you using? Do you have a preference if you're using ketamine?
1: Um, the, The paralytic that you use is independent of your induction agent. There's no particular reason to choose one or the other based on your induction agent the question of whether to use rocuronium or succinylcholine is an entirely different discussion, independent of the um, induction agent chosen. I'm a rocuronium guy, and uh, so I use ketamine rock rocuronium on just about every patient that I'm intubating.
0: All right, that's fair. Um, okay, so you, you intubated your patient, and now, you know, where uh, the nurses were getting all the drips set up for post-intubation sedation. And in your talk in in Chicago, you had mentioned something about, uh, let's say you have some ketamine left over in your syringe, and you may be pushing some of that in while the drips are being set up. Are you using this almost as a push-dose presser?
1: Uh, So, yeah. So when I intubate, I generally have 500 milligrams of ketamine drawn up. And I give 200 milligrams, let's say, for uh, induction. And that leaves me with 300 milligrams or so in my syringe. And um, keeping a close eye on the patient post-intubation, if they wake up, reach for the tube, I generally give another 100 milligrams as I titrate up my drips. And that way we never have the patient uncovered with analgesia or sedation in the post-intubation period.
0: All right, sounds good. Um, and then for RSI's, Is there any contraindication for a population to not use ketamine?
1: Uh, It's the same um, as for procedural sedation. Um, The patients who shouldn't get ketamine for RSI are the ones who you would not want to see a rise in blood pressure or a rise in heart rate. So someone who is already extremely tachycardic hypertensive, like your cocaine intoxicated, PCP intoxicated, Patient, someone who has thyroid storm and is very hyperadrenergic, your patient who has a hypertensive emergency, so CHF, subarachnoid hemorrhage, aortic dissection, these are the patients who you want to keep the blood pressure down, and ketamine is clearly not the right choice for those patients.
0: All right, this is a great place to stop. Ruben went over ketamine uses for uh, PSAs and RSIs. Stay tuned for the next episode, part three of the ketamine series, where we're going to talk about an emerging use of ketamine in the emergency department. And that's for analgesia. So stay tuned for the next episode. And thanks for listening. Feel free to put any questions, comments, concerns at recessnurse.com. I also would love to have iTunes reviews. It makes a difference for me and for this podcast. Thank you so much. Peace. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook.